So, um, Bela and I did rock, paper, scissors. I got to ask the first question. Since last month, I had to be the bad cop. So, this is my uh, big chance to get back at him. Um, so, first of all, why did you hire Bela? He's no, good. He's good. He's awesome. Um, no, thank you so much. Um, and I do want to thank you also, as Tony already just said, for sponsoring this event. It means a lot to the community and uh, this continues to grow. Um, so my first question to you is just if you could give me a little bit of uh, background, of, you know, a little bit of people may, maybe don't know you, who you are, a little bit about your background, uh, life in Australia, and some of the things that maybe shaped your philosophy. Sure, thanks. And thanks, by the way, for inviting me down here. And it's great to be in the Schenectady community. And uh, it's been over two years now since Clarkson's been uh, has merged, I guess, Union Graduate College into its activities. And we keep talking about it, and we will continue to talk about it, and we will actually do more and more about it, and that has become even more of a partner within the community. That's an important role for us. We feel it uh, very deeply. And, and so this is part of that activity. I can talk a little bit about that. Who am I? Uh, yes, I uh, was born and raised in, in Australia. Uh, actually, on my mother's side, going back four generations, the female was one of the first 200 women transported to Australia. In, in, in those terms, that means she was a convict. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so actually, obviously, you know, a long time Australian. Uh, and and I think a couple of characteristics that we talked about this, and, and it's funny when you go through a conversation like this and you get asked personal questions, it makes you reflective a little. And for those that don't know, many people are a little bit surprised. Australia is the same land area as the US, uh, but about right now about 25 million people, so a tiny population, same land area. And because of that, you grow up kind of feeling that you have to punch above your weight. And I think it's that characteristic that eventually wound me up in the North Country at a university that kind of loves to punch above its weight and have a bigger influence than it probably should have. And so that's a bit of an Australian characteristic that I think is taking me in, into this position. Great. What about home life? Do you have brothers, sisters, mom, what was... I, um, actually, my father passed away when I was uh, 19, I think. Uh, I have a sister, uh, two nephews. They live in Australia, and that they actually... Uh, my sister's children, we have four children, they've had deep bonds over the years and that drew one of our children and lives in Sydney uh, now. So there's, there's a strong next generation connection. And one last question and then I'll turn it over to Bela as well. But I was thinking, we were talking about like your career path and you know, the first Tony that spoke, also from Italy, so he's also an immigrant. Um, you know, he worked his way up. He was a, an intern and then he became the CEO of the company. And you know you were an associate professor, correct? Assistant professor. Assistant professor. Yeah. Is that even lower than? You absolutely can't get any lower. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so you worked your way up, and can you give us a little sense of, of that experience? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, um, I I guess you work your way up. That's not actually the way it works in academe. It's who wants that next job above you. It's it's like when when the room empties and you're left, and that's it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I. I I never actually aspired to academic administration. Um, I, was, I was a successful researcher and teacher. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, and, uh, and then after about 10 or 12 years, I started in 1982 at Clarkson as an assistant professor, water and wastewater treatment. And then as things happen at universities, the department chair um, position became available and people said, well, why don't you do it? 
And so that's the not really aspiring part of it. And, <laughs> and, and looking around and seeing no one else that seemed to be interested, I, well, I, I'll give it a go. And uh, actually the same kind of thing happened in the step to the Dean of Engineering. And, uh, and, and, and then yeah, there was a full national search when I got to the presidential level. And it was a little strange. There were three finalists and as the provost, I actually interviewed the other two finalists. We oh. couldn't quite work all that out, how that would work. Is that kind of like Dick Cheney when he became the vice president? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but as, in fact, I'll say that the, uh, after the process finished and there was a board meeting, I was actually, Karen and I were about to fly off to interview, a second interview for another president's position. And, um, you know, because it would be, after all of that, a little awkward to stay. <laughs> and, uh, but as fate turned out or something. Uh, so I'm just finishing the 16th year as president. Awesome. Great. That's awesome. So, Tony, uh, we, we focus here on, on these uh, meetings pretty much on entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activities. So you're leading an institution that's 125 years old that's in a very traditional market and industry and, and so how do you keep things entrepreneurial and active and sort of, it's also an industry where probably in the last five or six years there's been tremendous changes and those changes will continue. So how do you, as a leader of an organization like that, how do you think about keeping the organization moving forward and vibrant? Well, and, and sometimes I'll say things, they sound trite or, or quick or, but I'll say you do things and you have to do those things with a purpose. You have to be committed and you have to see opportunities and then you do them. And after a while, people start to believe that if you talk about changes and doing things and you actually do it, then they're ready for that. And so it was actually uh, on campus to begin with. It, there were good ideas and it was often, well, could we really do that? Probably the, the first example of that was our SPEED program, Student Projects for Engineering Experience and Design. I, I love competition. And that's actually part of, as I said, growing up. Australia likes to compete because, you know, otherwise no one would notice them. At least that was the, the, the sense in the country when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Who's going to take any notice of us way down here? And so it was that trying to compete, particularly internationally. And so I love competition. And, and, and so the student projects for engineering experience and design within engineering, but anyone can join the teams. And we have about 15 or 16 of them. And, and, and the, the students really run those. We have one person that oversees and tries to bring kind of some, some organization to chaos when, when students are running everything, but that's the way it should be. And those teams compete. And so last year, uh, we have a design, aeronautical engineering, a design, build and fly competition. It's a national competition, it's international. So think of the very best. Um, from Caltech to MIT, any aeronautical engineering department, you have you, each year is a different design, a plane with about a 10-foot wingspan and, uh, and different payloads and maneuvers. I think they had to fly five times out the Cessna airfield in Wichita, Kansas. And we won out of 91 uh, teams. And, and <laughs> so, I could see that introducing those kinds of opportunities to our students would, would allow them that opportunity to compete. It would benchmark what Clarkson is. It would give them a chance to really rise above the competition, put that on a resume and away you go. 
And so I could see it and one day we just did it. <laughs> and so it's seeing and then doing. Of course, it has to be valid. You have to be somewhat thoughtful. Uh, but, but that, and, and then since then, uh, off campus, suddenly I recognized that we could do things off campus to the advantage of the institution. And if you'll bear with me just for a little Please. extension of, <laughs> of the thought is, and I've, I'm, uh, you're all business people, pretty much. And so imagine if you've got employees and they're saying, well, we want three and four and maybe 5% pay rises and you've got your major income, it, let's put it in, in, in very local terms these days, a property income tax of 2%. Well, what happens if we cap tuition increases at 2%, which is between graduate and undergraduate activities, rev tuition revenue is what drives the institution. You'll hear the term tuition driven. And so 70 or 80, 70 percent plus or minus of our income, suddenly if we said, well, let's cap it at 2 percent, well, where are you going to get the extra, particularly when you've got energy costs and healthcare costs? And so for a long time now I've been preaching, uh, and I guess I listened to my own words, but I've been preaching we have to either derive more revenue streams or we have to become more productive. Now, more productive on a campus <laughs> is, well, you know, a this red is, cape this to is a being bull. podcast, don't forget. So. <laughs> well, but that, that's okay. And so, and so people are working hard, and, and, they've, and it's been a tradition in universities for 200-plus years, right? They are, they are the cradle of inspiration and new knowledge, and so it's hard to push back on pro or think of productivity, and so it had to be new revenue streams. And so expanding the revenue stream base was the only way that I could see that would, that would adjust the, 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 the formula that was sitting in front of me. And so the idea then of taking you know, some entrepreneurial thinking about doing things and moving it off campus so that we could grow revenue streams, that's a, a very fundamental picture of exactly what myself, our trustees, and, and, and administrators, and, and quite frankly, the staff and the students understood that that was a good way to go. It was beneficial in many ways that I can talk about, but that's the, the drive of when you say the entrepreneurial thinking. It had to happen. Okay, so now you have a campus up the road here. Mm -hmm. And can you walk us through a little bit about the Union Graduate College decision and how is it working? And, was that, and, how, and the other question I have for you is also just how do you assess, like there's probably times when maybe you a decision didn't work out, and how do you know when to pull the plug on something as well? I'm interested in your thought process on that. But I don't want to pull the plug on Saturday. We are tremendously excited about what's happened here, and, and there's no plug pulling. Okay, good, good. <laughs> let, let me add, by the way, that we actually had the same exercise in Beacon, New York, Beacon Institute for Rivers and Estuaries, down in Beacon, and in fact, uh, we're just signing off on some contracts to expand the facilities. If you ever go down to Beacon, it's a public, it's a state park on Dennings Point, and we have a facility there. And, uh, and it's probably worth a couple of minutes to, to explain that, and then that shows the mindset that we had when we went to Union Graduate College. Right. So at Beacon, um, all the way back to Governor Pataki, he had put aside capital funding for essentially a research center for rivers. Uh, and, and it was located at, at, at in, in eventually in, at, at Dennings Point in Beacon. 
And of course, it's easier, if you look to the federal government, typically it's easier to get operating funds than capital funds. If you look at the state government, it's typically easier to get capital funds rather than operating funds. You know, I, it's a, is that a fair, <laughs> and so, I'd forgotten about you there for a second, Paul. <laughs> Just in time. <laughs> so, so the, the, Governor Pataki had set aside capital funds, and, and they, were, they, they were pretty significant, but of course no operating funds. And so uh, they had developed a, a strong research component. One of our faculty members directed their research kind of in a joint appointment. They're unassociated. Uh, frankly, they were, they were in financial difficulty with no operating funds, very little. And so myself and Dean of Business at the time met with the state officials. We said, look, we think if you give us a chance, we could go in and assume, subsume, merge the Beacon Institute into Clarkson and we could establish graduate programs and two birds with one stone, solve the problem for Beacon as an institute and and add graduate programs in engineering and management into the Mid-Hudson region. It was a little underserved. And so, quite frankly, the state said, we're a little skeptical. And they said, well, we're, you get 12 months. So within 12 months, we actually had merged the Beacon Institute with about 12 employees, eight to 10 employees, can't remember, something like that. Uh, we had developed graduate programs, had revenue streams, and it's a great success. And we're building out that facility. We're now involved with K through 12 activities. Some of our undergraduates go down there in the summers, our faculty doing research in that, in that area, and of course we have graduate programs. With graduate programs down there, graduate programs on the main campus in Potsdam, and uh, again, I'm, I, I've actually chaired the accreditation visits for major universities that happen about every 10 years. They're just switching it to eight years. And so I've, I've chaired the accreditation visit, which is about six or seven of your peers going and spending three days on campus. I looked at WPI, at Stevens and others chairing them, and their movement, those two in particular, into executive graduate programs was remarkable and phenomenal. And so then think about the additional revenue stream and my wheels are starting to turn in my head. We were thinking, and, and Clarkson is very committed to its alumni, very committed to our corporate partners, many of which are here, the GEs, the IBMs, the Bechtels. We know that there was a demand, and yet it's a little difficult to run executive programs. You do need some face-to-face, -face. and so we'd been thinking about all of that. We thought, well, our graduate programs are now in our schools. That doesn't make a lot of sense if you want to expand graduate activities. So rough numbers, we're at about, we, at that, we're about 3,200 uh, undergraduates on the main campus and that's where our undergraduates are and then uh, we had about maybe six or seven hundred graduate students and we thought well if we can expand that and so now we're so we were ready I mean in a very strange way so ready because our thinking had been we need a graduate school graduate infrastructure all of that when I got an email <laughs> because a consultant had been with Union Graduate College which is a total standalone really had no direct connection with union, as a standalone entity consultant that said, you know, your future with about four or five hundred full-time equivalent graduate students is not a rosy picture. And so they'd started to look for some partners uh, to potentially merge with. I would say within, when, 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 when Laura Schweitzer emailed me and a few other people, I'd say within five minutes I'd email back and said, we're very interested. <laughs> Uh, and and, and I, your business people, most of you. And so 
The idea of a merge is a daunting task. We were so silly we had no clue about that. Uh, and, 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 and typically it takes time with due diligence and everything else. So for an academic, two academic institutions to merge within 12 months, literally within 12 months, must have set some kind of world speed records, all because they were interested. And I'll share with you in a very strange, serendipitous way, in their kind of uh, in, in, in their charter, they had literally that if, if they did something like that merge, they would have to give up the name union. And so there many. If there are failures of mergers in higher education these days across the country, I would say more than 50% are around whose name goes where. And so that was not an issue. We were ready. They were ready. It went to the heart of our disciplines, engineering and management, and so we did it. Unbeknownst to us was a department of education that focused in STEM education, Master of Arts in Teaching. That has become... You know, if, if, you, if you wanted a, you know, a kind of a startup business within an industry, for us, the Master of Arts in Teaching is just a wonderful entree to give us a pipeline where we're now influencing the teachers that teach the, the kids that, that in, in, in K through 12 that we want, right? STEM educated. So we're having, we're, we're, we understand what STEM education is about. Uh, we're helping to teach the teachers of STEM. Uh, and, and so that area was a terrific additional boom that we never thought of when, when we were really focused on in the merge. So it, it, it was, I won't say it was serendipitous, it was a planned and understood strategy from both sides that happened to have just the right moment in time. Timing is everything, I guess. Bela, you were the interim president of Union Graduate College, right, during that merger time? That's right. So yep. president to president kind of thing going on there? <laughs> or... well. That was interim, interim. Interim, that's right. So, uh, Tony, I was going to switch gears here a little bit. So one of the things that has swept you know, the country in the last 10 years is this whole online thing. I mean, it's hit retail, it's hit all sorts of businesses, and it really makes it, in some ways, advantageous for one or two huge giants to kind of control a large percentage of the marketplace. So online education is certainly something that's growing very rapidly, and there's a pretty strong demand for it. So how do you think about entering that market, being in that market, and, and, and how do you differentiate yourself in education as, as the whole landscape is changing rapidly? Yeah, and, and that question along with, I could probably ask myself, four or five other really uh, critical, important, far-reaching questions. But that, that one probably heads the, the pack. Uh, so for us, it, if I were trying to be an online provider uh, of just, uh, ju just course content and material, I would be terrified right now. Um, University of Southern New Hampshire, uh, uh, Arizona State, University of Massachusetts, uh, Purdue, they are so, um, Georgia, they're, they're so into that activity, they have so much, so many resources, and they will probably nail the, the, uh, the just delivery of, of, of course content approach. And so there's just no way that we should, Clarkson should think about competing uh, for that particular kind of uh, event. So we have to be high quality, high touch, personal, all the characteristics that 
people have come to expect out of a Clarkson-type institution, we have, to, we have to translate that into the online environment. And so for us, one of our major successes, the, the Master of Science Engineering Management approach, is we, have, we, we limit it very strictly to a cohort of 20 to 25 students, just enough so that you can put everyone's face on a computer screen. We invite them to, a, to, to meet at the beginning of each course, that typically a course, one course at a time, with the faculty member in a kind of retreat-like setting where you have uh, the cohort, they get to know each other, they interact, they begin the course uh, at that time with the, with the faculty member. It allows us to get faculty members of, of just spectacular quality. Uh, so, for example, the person that wrote the book on project management for the American Management Association is a Clarkson alumnus and he teaches project management for us. Wow. Uh, so, so it allows you to go out and cherry pick very specific people for those particular applications that the cohort of students is proud to know these people. They know that they can reference back to them after the course. They meet each other. The course lasts for eight or nine weeks. They come back together. So it's a very, it's not an online experience where, uh-oh, I've got to click in right now and do it. It's, it's, it's a, a, we have to learn how to make it a personal experience. All of our courses, as you know, we have a, a Quality Matters uh, program. We have three online, in, three instructors that focus on how to, how to get our faculty to teach the best kind of, in the, that kind of an environment. So for us, it's coming. We have to use it in the way that matches and suits the Clarkson image and brand, which is personal, uh, high quality, high value add. And so uh, if, if you wanted to go more to the mass numbers, uh, we couldn't survive. We're not going to survive. That's and, not ours. And you have a brand that you want to maintain. You want to maintain that level. Yep. All right. Um, I want to open it up. We have still many more questions, but we like this to be a conversation. So are there any questions for Dr. Collins? Is that, you I don't know if anybody's intimidated by this. <laughs> yes, please. Um, I'm a meteorologist here in town, and I don't own a consulting expert witness company. I graduated SUNY LB 24 years ago, and the day after that, I was kind of adopted to the Clarkson University solar power car race team country with Dr. Eric Thatcher, and it was an amazing experience, and at that point, Clarkson was on the cutting edge of uh, electrical engineering, they built their own solar-powered car, competed against 39 other universities, and in this day and age of solar and renewable, um, I'm wondering what, is Clarkson University still on the cutting edge of doing research and, and trying to you know, perfect that field? Absolutely, and, and so I, I would say that probably a third of our students are attracted to Clarkson because of our activity in the sustainable, in it, uh, sustainable slash energy world. And so a week ago, erected on our, uh, on, on our science building was a, a novel uh, wind uh, generator. Uh, it, it's actually a, a, a company that's owned and operated by a faculty member. It's a, it's, it's a ducted wind turbine, so, I mean, when you, when you have great inventions, often they're simple, <laughs> and B, the second thing is everyone says, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> and so you think of a jet engine, you think the duct, the, the reason that you have a, a, the, the shape of the in, intake to a jet engine is, is, is it, it creates much more efficiency with the airflow that's going in through the duct. Well, why not put the same kind of duct on a 
wind tower. And so if you want to go to Clarkson right now, you can see spinning. It looks actually like if you imagine a, a Mercedes, uh, the, the emblem for Mercedes, it looks just like that. In fact, one of our trustees wants to go to Mercedes and you know, get a donation because we're advertising <laughs> on our science route. Yeah. And that, so that's full cycle. So students have worked on it, faculty member owns the company. Uh, it's, it's going commercial. NYSERDA has actually put a lot of uh, funding into it. Uh, and and, and the, the short answer is yes. Um, not solar cars so much anymore. Uh, but, but that was at the, what you described was actually the beginning that gave me the idea to say, wait a minute, that's so successful. Why, why should we have one team? Let's have 15 teams. Of course, you know, you, that means you've got to have faculty members advising and, and you've got to be organised, you've got to have space. And so that's what I'm talking about. You've got to do it <laughs> and then just see what happens. And so, but, but that was the beginning. And so thanks for helping out with this. No problems. My pleasure. Thank you. Any other questions? All right. Back, back oh, back there. Sorry. I've waited a long time to ask this question. I've thought carefully about it, and now I'll ask it instead. So thank you. <laughs> but I, I have a second question about how people at Clarkson think. Years ago, I encountered uh, one of our trustees who was a sponsor of the solar car. And I don't necessarily say we had, in terms of technology, the top solar car. But we were the only person in the competition who had a mobile uh, repair shop to take with it. So when things broke, which happens all the time in technology, we could fix things. And many said other schools would come over and use our equipment and we would exact the price of beer and we became <laughs> But socializing is an important part of success. So you probably exemplify this, but how do you think about taking the values of a very traditional institution and transitioning from talking about excellence in the 80s we all know about to actually being excellent? What were the levers? Uh, I, I think what attracted me to Clarkson, I gave you a little bit of background on Australia, is, is I see exactly the same characteristics in Clarkson as I grew up with. That is, the desire to compete and prove myself and show the world that we can, you know, we, we are down here. <laughs> same thing in Potsdam. It's, in this case, it's we're up here. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, that, that, that DNA goes through the campus and it does not take a lot to initiate change and activity so long as people can see that it fits the mold and, th and that, that what you described about uh, you know taking the toolkit with you that and I said earlier you know we expanded we have a, a person Bob Davis that runs the speed programs and he helps bring organization to, to chaos you can't overstep your mark and tell people you've got to do it this way the best learning is by failing we absolutely and so and so even you know we're so tempted sometimes when we have great success with these teams well let's put all our eggs in this basket and put you know five technicians around them and we'll ensure our success for next year that's the worst possible reaction so it's it, it's it's allowing the students to succeed fail and, and and really feel the fruits of victory that that that's and, and then that that becomes uh addictive to the rest of the campus when they see that. Our women's hockey team, there's no doubt in my mind, <laughs> you know, when, when, it, when you can win the national championship three out of five years, uh, and, and it just shows the campus yet again, 
it's hard work and dedication and commitment. And so it's, it's explaining that and then, and then giving some time and attention and saying, let's do it. And people saying, okay. And the, the, the campus is small enough that you can actually have that influence. That's an advantage for us. And it goes back to, if we don't do that, everyone recognizes, you know, it's, it, my, my, my wife's father used to say they live in Canada. <laughs> and so, so, <laughs> so, so, you know, with with that in mind, the campus understands that it's terrific if we can show the world from where we are what's happening, and and so it's not as hard as you may think. So you just mentioned the best learning comes from failing. I'm sorry. It was a question, but go ahead. Well, well, no, it's the congressman. If it was anybody else, I would have <laughs> kept on going. Congressman Tonko, go ahead. Uh, well, thank you. And President Collins, Tony, thank you so much for your leadership uh, because I've seen it up front uh, from the state perspective and now from the federal perspective, and I know the respect that, that you're held in uh, by your peers. So I thank you as an alum for that. Uh, this whole drain uh, of engineering uh, majors, uh, where we as a country need to produce more engineers to maintain that sharp competitive edge, um, do you see something that we should be doing in the earlier settings that could encourage that population to grow? And uh, related to that, um, just I happen to believe that the global race on space drove a lot of interest in engineering uh, and it spiked some good activity. Do you see things like the Green Revolution and climate change to be doing the same? Yeah, th this is going to sound like you're a question plant for me in the audience. <laughs> so absolutely. So uh, actually, this exact time, in one week's time, I'm going to be at the Kennedy Space Center talking to about four or 500 high school students that have entered the, they're the finalists in the Conrad Challenge. So uh, uh, Pete Conrad was the commander of Apollo 12, the second team to land on the moon. He passed away in a, a motorbike accident about 18 years ago in California. His wife, Nancy, formed the Conrad Foundation. Uh, they have, it, it, it's, you, you, uh, it's an, an, an international competition. You write a business plan around something, a product, and essentially the, uh, the top 20 teams are selected, and that's about 400 people go to for, for what they call their summit to get hands-on help. And so I'm speaking down there. In fact, we, we now have a very strong partnership. We're the only major university partnered with the Conrad Foundation. And it, it's all about what we see as the next step in evolution. For us, we're calling it the Ignite program, where uh, you have to develop a mindset, a skill set, and experiences on campus. Everyone knows that Clarkson people, including everyone in the room, is technically competent. We know that. So no one even questions that. I'd say the soft skills, the teamwork and, and, uh, and the communication skills, we've, all of us, all universities have put a lot of emphasis onto that in the last 10 to 15 years. And so that's now pretty much taken for granted. But do you have an inventive and creative uh, mind, an entrepreneurial mindset? Do you have that? And we're trying to create that in every student. So the best, quickest example I can give is we, we just finished our second President's Challenge. And, I know the way I think into students' hearts. With graduate students, it's pizza. With undergraduates, it's money. 
And so, and so the, there, are, there, are, there are five, three categories this year, $5,000 first prize, uh, and, and it was create something for the Internet of Things. Mostly we aim it at our first year students. So the Internet of Things had to be for your local, for your own community, for us Clarkson, regional community or, in, or national community. And so eventually it came down to about 24 teams that, that formed. There are rules. You, can't, you have to have at least two or three disciplines. So, so the teams have to be very mixed and they, and they just arbitrarily go out and find them. Now, that was encouraged in all of our first year courses, a course in engineering, in the engineering and management program. And so we, we are intentionally using examples, and so maybe next year it could be one of those challenges that we're facing, climate change or, or, or sustainability. What, what can we do to, to change the world? What, what device or act, what, what could you produce? And, and so it's this, now we've got a lot of other things around it. And so, you know, the, the winning the entry ended up with 3,000 for winning their category and 2,000 for being uh, best of class. And we, it, it turns out that it's actually on campus, it's an, I want to quit my job and go, in this, there'll be phone calls, I guarantee, go out from this group this afternoon. So the idea was that with, with, in a, in a, we have a maker space and it's just, just been unveiled. And it, it's a large space and it's got lots of different you know, 3D printers and everything else. We can just go in and make things. And so we wanted to know what the util is. You know, have we got the right proportion of different pieces of equipment? Who's utilising it? So this was a camera, and it, it, and it has to be done anonymously because we can't intrude into people's privacy. But it knows where people are going in the room. So it just it takes it. It's a it's a, a, a um, it, it, through image technology. The output of it tells you at the end of the day where people went and what they did. Now think of Macy's and think of a, dis, a you know merchandising and so this you could just set your camera up. They've got all the, the software behind it. They can tell Macy's whether anyone's interested in that pair of brown shoes or, or whether everybody's going to look at the swimsuit. And and so that came out of a group of first year students. So um, so 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 you can't just talk about it, you have to do it. And so we said we'll have a President's Challenge, this is our second year, and, and how do you get involvement? You give them money. <laughs> it's that competition thing again. And so you're actually, you know, at a level down, you're telling them a lot about how they, you know, their behaviour and what they should do. But, um, so we are working on what I would consider the third generation. You know, the first was technical competence, the second was soft skills, now we're up to the third. How do we, how do we actually get every student on campus to have a, a mindset and a skill set that's entrepreneurial and, and inventive? Super. Any other questions? Yes, right here, Lamar. Did that student group uh, do a patent application? That's, Jamie, where are you? <laughs> did they do a patent application? I'm sure we did it original before we, uh, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Outstanding. Good work, Jamie. Did you know who Lamar is, by the way? Yes, okay. yes, yeah, Sydney absolutely. We're, we're going to be partnering. Oh, yeah. awesome, awesome. Bringing people together. Tony Civitella. Uh, thank you again. Uh, you know, we, we always talk about engineers. Being an engineer, of course, uh, there's a huge shortage of people like myself. But I always think engineers are not necessarily going to be there. They're not all inventors. They're not all going to be entrepreneurs. Sounds like maybe during the interview process, 
you guys have a process to say, this is not, not always going to be a, a great candidate for the school, but you could actually condense something, and it's going to be great for, for you to for Clarkson. Do you guys actually have a process during um, interview process to maybe cherry pick some of these? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, not, you could, a couple of comments. Um, it, it's, it's a self-selecting process. That's what we've noticed now. And so uh, the students that come in uh, uh, want that environment. And we talk about it a lot and we encourage them. And so it's become self-selecting. If, if that environment doesn't fit you, if you're intimidated by wanting to develop a mindset and a skill set you know, that, that's inventive and creative, we're not the right place for you. Um, and that doesn't mean we kind of turn them away. We, 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 we encourage them to think seriously about it and maybe they do really want it. So, so yes, we are. Um, it's become self-selective. I actually think that anyone can benefit from what we're trying to do. So that any employee should be able to say, any, any employee for any of you should be able to walk up to you and say, there's a better way of doing it. I've been thinking about it. If, if, if we're going to be remain the number one economy in the world, we can't afford to have anybody not saying there's a better way of doing it. And so we're just so embedded into that that one more little bit is my, my favourite story probably is, so we had a high school student that was looking at us or, or a community college where he could actually go for free. And I said, gosh, what a, you know, you, you really, this, this, what's wrong with this picture? You need to come to Clarkson. So this is, nine, he graduated in 14, so it would have been 2010. And he, he and his father came to my office once and we, in, in this fall, came back in, in April and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to go probably to, for free for two years and I'll transfer to Clarkson. I said, this is a mistake. I said, we need you. I said, well, I, I, he, I said what's it going to take for you to come to Clarkson? He said, make me an offer. <laughs> Excellent. So I said, okay, whatever you have to pay out of pocket after financial aid is applied, etc. You can get that for free, but we'll take 1.25% of your company, because he had a company that was part of the attraction, and <clears throat> he, he was developing websites in a very spe specific area for municipalities and things. Uh, and, and so eventually we ended up with 10% of his company. He graduated, and about three years ago, he turned up uh, and pre presented me with a check for about $18,000 to buy our 10% back to his company. Um, and so, we, we are specifically trying to reach down. For us, we're reaching down into high schools. That, that, that award, by the way, is available still today, and, and we, we have um, people being attracted to it. So clearly, it's part of your brand at this point. It's, it, and, and so that's what I'm saying. It's becoming self-selected, which I actually don't want, because I want everybody to, <laughs> to, to, be, to, to be thinking this way. As I said, you don't have to be you know, a, a, an entrepreneur starting a business, but I firmly believe that everybody, all of us, should be saying there's got to be a better way of doing it. If, if we lose, that's the only way we're going to, of course, that's the competition, right? <laughs> but, and that's, that's where life is fun. You know, I, I remiss to, to share this earlier. Our very first, and so far, our only intern that we've ever had at the Biz Lab was a Clarkson student. Tyler Rooney, who graduated a couple years ago. We were not looking to have an intern at mm -hmm. all. He had just done some Google searches. He approached me, and I was a little nervous of going to Tony to ask if we could have an intern program. And I go, but when I said, but he's from Clarkson. <laughs> it was either Clarkson or Siena. You get a yes out of it. Yep. So anyway. <laughs> so quick question, because we, we literally have one minute left. But quick question, is there something that 
you would love to go back and tell a younger Tony Collins about the world ahead? What would that be? Uh, this is going to sound strange. It'd be probably take even more risks and, and try things even earlier. You know, you, you get to be my old age, and, and, you, and, and that's, that's, of course, when you think you've, you've finally understood everything and, and, and how things work. And, and quite frankly, you know, Paul was very gracious in his remarks, and you never quite understand what influence you have, um, and, and, and maybe until it's too late. And so maybe using that influence and that, that, that vision, if you have some, of, of acting even more quickly and even at a higher risk. And that's, so uh, hello to all the trustees that are out there watching this live. Don't worry yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great takeaway. That's not, please give it up for Dr. Tony Collins. Can I say one more? I mean it very sincerely that Clarkson is committed to Schenectady in particular. We'll be down here, we, you know, Jamie with um, the Shipley Centre, our faculty, what we're doing. Uh, we, we fully expect to be a real partner in this community because there's so much opportunity. Uh, the, the environment is not unlike Potsdam. It's, it's a tough environment. We recognise that and we would love to make a very positive contribution. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank Thanks so much. So. As we promised to get you up by 1 o'clock, it's 12.59, so a couple quick things. Uh, first, thank you again so much. Uh, I learned so much. I think there's a lot of takeaways. I want to thank our meal sponsor again, One Group. Thank you for investing in this. Our video sponsor, Lavelle and Finn, and Clarkson alum, Arkley uh, Mastro. Thank you again, videographer and sponsor, uh, Richard Lynn from Agora Technologies. It's also my pleasure to announce our next speaker, Heidi Knobloch, who uh, is the uh, founder of a company called Receipt HQ. And uh, let's see, this will, she'll be starting our third year. So we'll be, next time we meet, we'll be in our third year. So thanks again so much for coming and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Tech here on my phone. Sorry, Richard, really lame, I know. Oh, I left my, my now, anybody who's been to these events in the past, you know that I like this to be a conversation. So I have a few questions. Actually, I have 15 questions, but I'm not going to get to them all, and I'm okay with that. I would much rather have the questions come from you. So I'm going to just start off, but if, I'll look around, and if you have something, please, um, I should probably turn my chair around a little bit so I can see Matt. Yeah, I don't want to miss Matt's or Kelly. Handsome fellow that he is. All right. So if you have any questions, are you waving to somebody? Yeah, all of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, kind of like a reunion, sort of, a little yeah, bit. It's a little bit like it was nice. So uh, if you have a question, please feel free to just you know, make eye contact with me, and I'll, I'll get you on there. So before we get to the nitty-gritty, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, you got this PhD from Yale. As I said, I'm intimidated by that. But we talked on Monday for over an hour, and I'm like, she's just so full of life and just so many ideas and just, just super fun to speak with. But tell me how you went from academia to entrepreneurship. Yeah, and with 15 questions, I have to tell you, PhDs normally aren't like, you know, the shortest of answers, you know. <laughs> dissertation. You, you got it. That's right. I won't How long was your dissertation, by the way? 350 pages. So that's that. it? Okay, yeah. good. No problem. <laughs> we'll just get through half of that. Then. That's right. So the transition to academia, from academia to entrepreneurship, is actually a lot smoother than I think a lot of people would think. There's actually a lot of similarities between academia and entrepreneurship. In academia, you kind of have to make 
you know, you have to find your niche. And in my case, it was making an intervention in the historiography of the history of science and medicine. So you have to kind of see what the landscape is, find your niche, and make. Is it niche new. when you have a PhD and it's niche? If you're <laughs> niche. like a blue collar okay. guy, like there you no, go. Okay, I'm, we can go. We can, we can go either way. <laughs> or Nietzsche or something. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. So, so that same type of thing you have to do as an entrepreneur as well. You have to take an evaluation of the landscape and then find a way that you can contribute to the landscape. So you see entrepreneurial ventures that fail often when they don't take a view of the landscape. So you see that in pitches a lot, right? So if you ask someone in a pitch, who's your competition, they say no one, don't fund that person. <laughs> <laughs> I know my, when I, that was when I was a novice reporter. I would, my first couple stories of the business review, I'd come back and my crusty editor, who's no longer my editor anymore, um, I'm just kidding, but I would say, he goes, you know, who's their competitors? And I would say, oh, they don't have any competitors. He looked at me like, you know, an idiot, which I was. So, good point. Um, so, in talking about landscape, I mean, even today, she, how early did you get here today? Uh, well, so I got to, actually, if you guys look at Plum Oyster Graham's um, Instagram story, so what we did is, uh, we kind of took something that ACE, the Alliance for the Creative Economy, is trying to do to heart, and today, um, I got here at about uh, 9.30, and I started just walking around downtown Schenectady, and I was a tourist in a local city. So I went to a bunch of places that I hadn't gone before. Um, I went to Puzzle. I've had like four cups of coffee now. So <laughs> I went to, she starts getting jumpy. Right. So I went to Liza's, I went to Puzzle's, um, I went to the Cappuccino place. Happy Cap. Happy Cap, that's right, a breakfast place on J Street, and so, and just kind of documented it on Plum Oyster Bar. So kind of getting right. a light, the lay of the landscape. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. I'd never been to, as I say in the, the first video, which is, I, it was the first time I did an Instagram story, so I had to call my general manager and say, Molly, I feel so old right now, but you have to, I have no idea how to do this. So she walked me through it, and the first one, a little too close to my face, but, <laughs> but, but. It's a nice face. That's right. Okay. You wouldn't want this face to close, but that's a nice thing. Um, so how, would you say you still apply things from academia or from your, your, the skills you have? And you, you talked about like even just how you wrote your dissertation. It was just get your butt in a chair yeah. and just get the work done. Well, there's, there, you can't, uh, there's, there's nothing that will ever replace um, the time that you think about things and the time that you spend on things. That is the one thing that you can never get more of. And if you, uh, don't spend time on something, it's just not gonna get done. So the way that I wrote my dissertation is I said, okay, listen, I'm gonna have five chapters. What's well, the number one impact journal in my field? Okay, the Bulletin for the History of Medicine. Each of those journal articles is a max of 10,000 words. Okay, so I have to write 10,000 words a chapter. This is how many days I wanna get a chapter done and I just plotted it out and just literally sat there and wrote that amount of words. There were some nights that were awful because I just didn't get up until it was done and then just took two weeks to revise each chapter. Excellent, excellent. Um, so you said something that was kind of interesting in our conversation about how there, in some ways, there's more freedom to do certain things in the capital region than in a big city like New York City. Yeah. You want to tell me a little bit about that? So I will say that in the capital region, one, I think it's an incredibly supportive entrepreneurial community. You have kind of all the support in the world to start new ventures. I mean, even think about downtown Troy. You've got the bid. Katie Hammond is here. You've got... Dylan from the city of Troy, you got two people from Rensselaer County uh, who are here. It's an incredibly supportive environment. But in addition to that, if you open a restaurant in New York City, you know, you have to invest your money up front because you're gonna get 10,000 people in your door that first week, and if they all write a bad review, no one's ever coming back. 
And so we kind of took a, well, I took a lean startup model to Plum. I don't have any investors in Plum. And so it was all, it was two loans and any money that I had. So like our first tables were, I don't know if anyone was at Plum like the first couple was weeks. Was anybody we were open. there? First, first couple week, weeks couple we weeks? were open. All right. Good. <laughs> it was a it was a, a utter disaster. Like just c things could not have gone. Can you give me like what the reporter we still wants um, to know like the meeting. So the the first day of our soft opening, um, I thought that we were going to serve oysters on a flat black slate. Okay. Do you know what oysters do? They all slide. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they sure do. We use those for our cheese boards now, but. You know, we had folding tables that I bought that were, I think they were $25 each, something like that. And so we just invested back in as we were going. You can't do that in a big city. You have to invest up front. Why oysters, by the way? How did you come up with that idea? So I'll give you like the, I'll give you the two answers. The one's very practical and the one is like, the real know, answer. pie in the sky. <laughs> Um, when I was in, I lived in Brooklyn for a while. My wife was an attorney at Davis Polk, and so she's a commercial litigator. And she and I would go out to dates and get dollar oysters, so super cute. We like fell in love over oysters, you know, oysters. like very adorable. <laughs> um, and oysters are a lot like wine, because oysters taste completely different depending on where they're farmed. So you can, you can instantly taste the difference between an East Coast and a West Coast oyster. And I could even taste the difference between like a, a Prince Edward Island oyster and like a oh, really? Massachusetts oyster. Wow. Absolutely. And so they're You're the an only, oyster connoisseur. That's right. Okay. They're the only food that tastes like what it consumes. So like the example that I always use is you could eat a grass-fed burger, but you don't know if that cow ate grass in Iowa or Wyoming. But... When you eat an oyster, you know exactly where it was grown. Oh. And so that, that part of like, I, I just got obsessed with learning that stuff, right? So, and teaching that stuff. And then the other market stories, there was, you know, there were people serving oysters in downtown Troy. So I did, you know, my due diligence with market research. So really simple stuff like Google keywords, who's looking for oysters, where are they looking for oysters around, whatever. And there was a place that was serving oysters only one night a week. So I went over there every night of the week for two weeks. I was like, there are a lot more people here when they're serving oysters. <laughs> so I opened up right across the street from them. <laughs> Very good, awesome. That's a good break point there. Anybody have any questions? Are there any? Are you kidding me? All right, let's talk about your background, growing up. You grew up where? How many siblings? Do you have okay. any siblings? I have, Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I have two younger siblings. One's eight years younger than me, and one uh, is only 18 months younger than me. We grew up all over upstate New York, and that's in part because my middle sister, so we're only 18 months apart, she has autism. And the type of autism that she has, she, she wouldn't have been able to participate in a public school education had it not been for my mom, who was very, so we, you know, we were in Albany, we moved to Cooperstown, my parents thought we were gonna live in Cooperstown forever. Um, Julie was diagnosed with autism, and my mom, this is my, I'm going to tell this story really quick about my mom. It's my favorite story about my mom. No hurry. So my mom is a goody two-shoes. Doesn't tell a lie. Very, like, you know, all that. She's a doctor, great person. And when Julie was diagnosed with autism, she went to the Cooperstown Public Library. This is 19, 
she was probably, so Julie was born in 87. She was probably diagnosed in like 1990. She took out books on autism and it was all the refrigerator mother theory. So all of these books were saying that it's because you neglected your child early and she took them, she stole them from the library. <laughs> so she has like a massive fine right, right now. It's That's like, right. Yeah. And so, and, but, so after Cooperstown, we moved to Syracuse because there is a school there called Juonio. And that school is a school for kids with disabilities and without. And so I always tell people that's the best education that I ever received. So Yale PhD is nothing on being five years old and playing basketball with someone in a wheelchair. That's where I first learned American Sign Language, where I minored, I minored in that at the University of Rochester later. But um, that was a great thing. And so, you know, Julie lives five blocks away from me with okay. my mom. And it's part of the reason, one of the things that I'm hoping that we do in Troy and Schenectady in the capital region is that we start to invest in companies that have an eye towards not only employing people with disabilities, but also creating projects, creating products rather, like artificial intelligence products that allow you to do stuff when you still have a disability. So, or, or anything like that, like something that's a, you know, a, a, almost a reward system, something like that. So. Does anybody have any ideas in that vein? She's probably a good person to talk to because he gets things done, makes things happen. Um, that's a really moving story. Um, so you had the entrepreneurial event even as a kid. I love this story. This is a, this is a great story. Tell me a little bit about Warheads and Pixie Sticks. Yeah, sure. This might be worse than the Oyster story. So, um, <laughs> So when I was a kid, I, you know, I always had kind of that entrepreneurial thing. I was always doing something. And so does anybody remember Warheads? Candy? Yeah, the candy, yeah. So uh, Warheads come in a package, but they're individually wrapped inside that package. So when I was growing up from fourth grade, seventh grade, I lived off of exit 11. And at the time, it's built up now, but at the time there was only one Stewart's that anyone could walk to. It was about a mile away from the bus stop. That's changed probably by now. It's probably it's three Stewart's yeah, there. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, they've moved across the street. But um, so I went to the Warheads and used all my birthday money and bought them out of Warheads. Or the Stewart's and bought them out of Warheads. You cornered the market. That's right. Before you knew so the I, expression. I, de I depleted the supply. <laughs> and then yeah. I opened the package and sold them individually on the back of the bus for whatever. That's Same how you, thing with that, Pixie Sticks. So if you went to the dollar store at the time, you could buy 100 Pixie Sticks for a dollar, and I sold for 10 cents each. Is that how you funded Yale? Yale? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's, I did put it in a Roth IRA later. Oh. <laughs> I don't think she's kidding. No. Actually. I love that. You hand, moved your hand. This is like an auctioneer. <laughs> Any, all right, not, not yet. yet. No? All right. Like um, so you mentioned something about um, critical thinking. Mm -hmm and how um, you do miss a little bit of the critical thinking that you feel like you don't see that so much in the entrepreneurial world yeah. as you do in the academia world. Just tell me a little bit about that. So I think you, you see some, let's call them ex-academics, the, the hashtag that goes around in the academic community is alt-ac, so alternative academics. So you see some of them kind of railing against academia. That's not my position at all. I, I really enjoyed academia. There are a couple things that I didn't like about it, but one of the things that I really missed that I loved about it was that 
academia gives you the space to critically think about things. It gives you the time to do that. So that is a lesson that I've absolutely taken with me on this entrepreneurial journey. I'll give you an example. So Receipt HQ, which I don't know how much we'll talk about well, today, well, but, yeah. but so this company, it's, a, it's very different than a restaurant, very investable company. And some people have asked me if they can invest, and I've said, no, I need to think about that. But if you... If is that playing hard to get? No. no I have it's to really, I have to... It's, you probably want to invest even more after you say that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, Let me I don't know what their psychology is, but it's, it's truly a, you know, you really, you have to take the time to, to think about that stuff. Or another example. So um, how many people uh, process credit cards in their business here? Okay, so processing credit cards, uh, very intense process to uh, acquire someone who's going to process your credit cards and then have a gateway and all of these things. So there's a negotiation process. So before, I, I took three months to start Plum Oyster Bar from idea to inception, which, wow. yeah, it was a little intense. Um, but, uh, because I was doing a lean startup model. So I was like, yeah, I'll just open the door. I'm sure it'll be fine. And get some slate plates. Yeah, get some slate plates. I don't care. I just put a couple of tables up, you know? I think I had like 16 bottles of alcohol when we opened the first day. We now have $16,000 of alcohol in our basement. But wow. um, That's probably not so, a good thing to tell the crowd. Yeah, I know. Don't go stealing it. But so credit card processing, you have to learn about like what basis points are and all just a whole myriad of things. But what I did is I just I went to Quicken. And I said, what's your rate? And they gave me the rate. And then I went to five other companies and I said, can you beat this rate? And it, I, I can't even imagine how much money it has saved me over time. I, I can't even fathom that. And it's literally just from thinking about this one process in your business that I never have to think about again because I have a contract. I also thought it was interesting. You talked about like the cube. You know the cube you can plug into your phone. Mm. You spent time before you decided, like, we're not going to do that. No, I mean, Square... I, I That's right, Square. Never, yeah, and I never was in discussions with Square, but my impression of most of Square is that they charge a flat rate. So they charge like 2.7% for anything, whether it's a debit card or a credit card. So I just did a lot of research, and people in the capital region mostly pay with debit cards. Oh, I didn't know that. And that's only a 0.1% or something like that right. because it's a less because you're not taking as much risk. And so I was like, well, why am I paying 2.7% for a debit card transaction? I, I didn't investigate Square too much. People use Square because it's kind of an all-in-one, so you right. have your employee stuff on there, but that employee stuff isn't actually verified in the same way that it is by other payroll companies, so that's not good either. I just like the idea that you take a step back. It seems like you're not going to get rushed into things, I mean, yeah. except for starting a business, but besides that, yeah, right, yeah, not, yeah. but you were leading that. You were, right, that yeah. was not someone pushing you into something. Right. Um, okay, yes, a question, Shanish. Yeah. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. Um, So I know your wife works at Emma Willard, so I'm going to tell you a story about how I went to Emma Willard. So there are, and this, I don't know what you call it, whether it's fate or, I, I don't know kind of what ethereal force is in the universe. But whatever it is, I have a little bit of that. So when, there, there have been turning points in my life 
where I just make the decision. So I'm going to tell you the story about how I applied to Emma Willard. I was 14, no, 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 13. I was 13 and I knew my babysitter's daughter went to Emma Willard. And I remember dialing on to the internet because it was, you know, AOL, like with a CD situation. Oh. Um, and I went to the Emma Willard website and requested a paper application. And my parents were like, what are you doing? We can't send you to Emma Willard. What are you doing here? What are you doing? It comes in the mail, whatever. And I fill out this application. <laughs> so you say, listen to them. Me. You fill yeah, out the application. For her. <laughs> no, and I, I just say, just let me kind of go with this. And those moments in life where you kind of have that overwhelming feeling, like the first moment that I went onto the Emma Willard campus, I was like, this is what I need to do. I mean, that was a transformative uh, educational experience for me, for sure. And I think for anyone. Um, but you, for me, I've kind of had those, I think I, I wouldn't say that I am a, I don't think I'm good at balancing that emotion when I feel it with reason. But I'm very, very good at making sure that that emotional drive has reason behind it. So I don't really know how to say that better, but with the restaurant and that decision, my third year of academia, I kind of knew that I didn't want to get the PhD. I think that's why I wrote the dissertation so quickly. The, the normal, I think people take like eight to nine years to graduate from the History of Science and Medicine program at Yale, and I took five because I just... Just wanted to do it. Um, knew that Overachiever. I <laughs> well, I just wanted to complete it, if that makes sense, because I knew that I didn't want a tenure-track position. And so um, the restaurant, though, the, the initial drive behind that was not at all rational. I would actually call it very irrational. There's a really, it's actually the, um, the psychologist who's in the Elizabeth Holmes documentary, Theranos. He, it's just, I forget his name, he's great. But what he says is you don't want people to be super, to be all the time uh, always thinking that they can't, you want people to over promise to themselves sometimes because that's how you accomplish great things. Like who thinks I can go to the moon? Who oh, thinks I should be president of the United States? That's not a rational thing to think. So I think that, you know, and that fits nicely with entrepreneurship because don't yeah. they say like you know you, you have this overabundance of confidence right. based on no reality. That's right. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. No, that's 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 better said. So I think that being overconfident in that and over over optimistic with then not giving up when it doesn't become that thing that is you know that I'm overconfident about, right? So like with the restaurant I was like, "Oh, it's going to be great." I'm just gonna open it. Like seriously, I really, I genuinely. Did you have anybody thought, in your life that was restaurant that had a restaurant background? No, I before um, kind of a little known fact, but I so I dropped out of college. Really, I don't know if we would have let you be here today. I know it was the Yale thing. That, no, I'm I just know. no, I dropped out of college, but really? just for one. Yeah, I actually, I was, I was, I thanked myself a lot of times. So I took a year-long sabbatical from college and moved to New York. And there I started working in coffee shops and did a lot of stuff down there. And there was an opportunity for me to, at one point, purchase a coffee shop there. Oh. The rent on Bleecker Street was a mere $14,000 a month in 2007. <laughs> 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 but, so, I, that, this is a good example of being overconfident but not going into bad deals. So our attorney, um, 
you know, he wanted to do a debt check on the business, and the owner wanted us to take on all the debt. And I, I pulled the deal two weeks before we were going to close. Wow. Awesome. So you have some exuberant um, optimism, but not ridiculous, not to the ridiculous, you know, state. Uh. Maybe. All right. Depends who you ask, I guess. I see a question in the way back. So anything that she was over, did anyone hear the question? Mm -hmm. Something she was overzealous about, overconfident about, failed at, but learned lessons from. I mean, the pixie stick thing worked out okay. The warheads yeah. worked out okay. No, there's definitely, I've definitely failed a lot of things. I just don't know if they've been the things that I've been overconfident about necessarily. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, so just talking about the move to New York really quick. So I had this very, I, so I, in the University of Rochester is where I went to undergrad, and so I actually with the Skevington's daughter. We went to Emma Willard together and to the University of Rochester mm -hmm. together. She's two years younger than me. Did I mention that the Skevington's are the IT sponsors, Steadfast <laughs> IT sponsors? I just want to make sure I threw that out there. You did. And so um, at the University of Rochester, I studied history and public health, hence then later the history of science and medicine. But, so I studied history and public health with a minor in American Sign Language. And I really thought that public health, and this is an example of how academia can sometimes not mesh with the real world. I really thought that public health was like Virkov and like, you know, changing social determinants of health, like improving housing, um, you know, it, it just it improving food and all of these things. So I went to New York during that year and went to, the, um, went to CUNY Hunter for uh, community health education. And in my first couple days, I realized that that is not what public health professionals were being taught. They were being taught how to make a brochure to make sure that someone wore a condom or stopped smoking. So it was all individual behavior change. And I was very uh, not about that because I don't think that you can ask people to make these individual behavior changes without making these systemic changes. And so I was super disillusioned by that that's, I don't know if that's, so I, I failed at that. So I went back to the University of Rochester and was just like, I made a big mistake. <laughs> Please take me back, you know? And so, and then it was, I took six classes a semester my senior year. Uh, had really no life whatsoever, but I graduated on time. Wow. I think most people have, anybody here ever changed their major? Any, okay, a lot of hands go up. I was one of the weird ones. I knew in fourth grade I wanted to be a journalist. Yeah. That's bizarre. That's, no, that's, but, um, so you have 25 employees, 25, 30. Uh -huh. And so, you know, you went from starting something to all of a sudden you, that's a pretty sizable yeah. workforce. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your leadership style, what things you, and maybe you've learned some things there yeah. that you wouldn't do again, or you talked about maybe a bad hire without naming them. Yeah. Cause it's going to be on you know, right. video forever. That's but right. tell me a little bit about your leadership style and maybe some lessons learned in, as you grow, as you've grown. In uh, so I'll tell you just a quick story that happened uh, two days ago, so oh, I was. <laughs> wow! So this since we talked. Yes. Wow! Breaking news. So. Breaking news, John. You got that? Breaking news. He's with the Gazette, by the way. John oh, Crapley, right here. Hi, John. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to broaden this not to just employees, but just the capital region more broadly. Something that I have really struggled with here, and it's because I've been in a lot of environments where people are very motivated all the time. So Emma Willard. University of Rochester, Yale, New York City, like people in those places are very motivated all the time. And so 
in the capital region, not necessarily my employees solely, but other stuff that I do. Doesn't matter if it's a board or whatever. I find that people, when I say something, like if I was like, could you pass me that water? There's no impetus to do it if, if it's not like my hair is on fire. <coughs> so I was at the restaurant the other day and I just said, hey, could you wash some white wine glasses? 15 minutes later, I had no white wine glasses and three white wine orders. And so I had to go back to the kitchen and I said, I really need these glasses. And they're like, oh, and then everybody gets anxious. And so I was like, how do I solve this problem? Because I'm increasing my blood pressure by... And frustration. You know, whatever. Whatever I'm doing, whether it's with the, you know, whether it's a board of Emma, the um, Alumni Council of Emma Willard or whether it's like for an event that I'm doing or whether it's in my role of the city, me saying something calmly like, hey, could you review that document? Never done. Until I'm like, we need to review that document or else everything's well, going to die. I was kind of thinking. And so, but listen, listen okay. to the strategy. Sorry, sorry. So my, and I, maybe I'll employ it at the city too. And so, this, <laughs> so my strategy with the employees is I went on Amazon and I bought a cardboard Bruce Willis mask. <laughs> like a cardboard Bruce Willis mask. Why Bruce Willis? He was a white dude. Okay. And well, there's so, <laughs> a lot of white dudes. But, so, yeah. and I said, hey, listen. So we've got, I'm just trying to come up with strategies so that I'm not getting everybody riled up and myself riled up. So if I say to you, hey, could you pass me that glass yes. of water? If you got the Bruce Willis thing. Right. So. Right. I said, just imagine that I'm Bruce Willis asking you to pass me that glass of water. Oh. That and is... it works great, actually. <laughs> and so, and I bought my general manager a, a Putin one. Oh. <laughs> How about like a, you know, like a President Trump, like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Pass me the water. It's going to be great. Okay, I, think, I think there is a problem with, uh, in the capital region, a lot of things, when you present them in a way that is your hair is on fire, in a negative way, they get done. And if you don't present them in a positive way, hey, let's plan this out, they don't get done. So do you want to hear all my, my six Ps? Sure. So is there going to be a test after? Should I write these down? No. So pen. these are... You know, I don't really read like a lot of business books. Like I've read like the Lean Startup or whatever, but I don't. I'm not like a, a consumer of those. Okay. But so I have some P's though. So it's when you prepare, you prevent. Okay. That's the first P. Yeah. So when you okay. prepare, you prevent. Okay. Okay. Got it. Uh, when you permit, you promote. And when you plan, you produce things. Did you make that up? I didn't make up the second one. The second one actually came from an EO event that I was invited to. I love that. I'm stealing that. Do it. I That's stole the awesome. second one. So. That, is, that is really good. Um, but I was going to say, though, you're asking sort of a rhetorical, like, can you wash the glasses? Yes, I can wash the glasses. You know what I mean? You're not saying, you like, like, wash the you sound like an attorney. glasses. You know? <laughs> wash the stupid glasses, please. That's right. And I also think about Cornerstone University. Where's Matt? I lost Matt already. Um, talking about asking reverse questions, and he was talking a little bit about that in class the other day about right. asking, answering a question with a question. With a, uh -huh. I'm going. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? By the way, Craig, you got to have a question for me. You've known her since she was in. He hasn't actually. Oh. He hasn't. We just your daughter has known her. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nothing like being put on the spot, though. <laughs> PhD to PhD. Would you like to ask a really smart question? <laughs> just dumb it down enough so we can all understand it. <laughs> 
one question then. With a PhD, you're trained to research. Yeah. You're not trained to do. Right. How did you find that transition? Nice. So, so actually, very similar to, so I was at an event, actually Craig and I met at um, an artificial intelligence event up in Saratoga, and he told this story about how in, early on in his career he was working on self-driving vehicles. And so it was, it's actually very similar to that experience, right? So you, you're trained in academia to research, and especially in history of science and medicine, criticize, hypothesize, all of these things. But for me, it was actually the moment of the dissertation where I switched to doing. And that's, I don't think that's for everyone. I think in humanities, it, it, it kind of is. So I said, I need to get this done. And there is nothing that will get this done that is not just me sitting in front of a computer. That I can't dream it up. You can't allocate it to somebody else. No, to do. Right. no you can't. You just, you just have to do it. And so because I was so motivated to finish, because I was demotivated in the world of academia, so I was motivated to finish so I could get out of academia, um, yeah, I finished quickly. I saw a hand back there. You still have a question? Yeah. Go ahead. So my thought too yes. is about posters. Yes. So I know the difference, I mean, I don't really like posters, but I'm curious about the difference between printed or non-oysters, yeah. the East Coast, West Coast. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The, yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the biggest difference is between East Coast and West Coast. So Pacific water and Atlantic water. So East Coast oysters are very briny. So it's kind of what we think of as an oyster. So they've got that brine to them, a lot of salt. Oysters actually consume salt. So the larger an oyster is, typically the more salt it's consumed. So that's why like Virginia oysters in the Chesapeake are larger. But West Coast oysters, they almost taste like a melon. They taste sweet, and they're plumper oftentimes. And that's they're more laid back, too, I think. They're more laid back. <laughs> and it's, a, it's actually a technique that they use often on the West Coast. They use it sometimes on the East Coast, too, called tumbling. So oysters aren't caught. So actually, this is a funny story, really quick side note. So I've, I've learned a lot about oysters, but when we were first opening, there were Cisco reps that kept coming in, and they kept telling me, oh, we give you a QR code for where your oysters are caught. And I was like, oysters are farmed. They're not caught. What do you mean they're caught? You know what I mean? What are you talking about? You don't actually don't know anything about oysters. Anyway, so we don't use Cisco for our um, so, so there's this, there's a, all oysters are farmed for the most part. And they're farmed in cages and you can tumble them and that creates a deeper shell. So West Coast oysters typically have that, and they're, they're grown for a longer period of time. And so that's the biggest difference. But something from like a Prince Edward Island, which is a, a East Coast, northern, very cold water, it's like smoother than, and the farther south you go, you often get like more salty brines. So like that Massachusetts oyster, like a Wellfleet or something, will be really salty. And then in terms of, we get oysters every day. Um, we set, like on a Saturday night, we sell like 600 oysters, or something like that, 600, 700 oysters. On a Tuesday, it's like half of that. Um, that's often because we do dollar oysters, and so we do that, you, anytime that you're at a place that does dollar oysters that isn't a Virginia oyster, they're taking, they're, it, they're using that as a way to get people in the door, because an oyster costs like 89 cents, so by the time you wash it and all the labor and everything, you're 
not making your money back, right? So dollar oysters are very much like a thing, but that's really just you're, you're breaking even. But we do it because we want to get new, fresh, cool oysters in. We have the smallest amount of oysters we'll have on a start of any given day is four. The large, we've had seven at a time. Different types. Great. Um, Receipt HQ. I want to get to that and then I'll get to Tyler and then we'll come back down here. Tell me a little bit about how that came about, sure. where it stands, and then you also said you might have some news to announce. I don't know if you That's did. Right. All right. But go ahead. So, so tell me about Receipt HQ. Where did it yeah. come from? So Receipt HQ, it's, a very, it's actually a very simple idea and it stemmed from a problem that I had in the restaurant. So there's a tension in restaurants. So restaurants that are white tablecloth, and the definition of that is a restaurant that has a $50 or more check average. Oftentimes, um, they, it's very customary that they, they would give you a paper receipt. So imagine that experience of being at a business lunch and you grab the receipt off the table or you know, you've had this nice date and whatever, you grab the receipt. So restaurants want to do this paper practice. The best example is Clark House Hospitality across the street from me. When you go and buy a coffee from them, you just sign on the pad. But when you go to Peck's Arcade, they give you a paper receipt. The problem is, is that credit card companies, in order to fight a chargeback, require that you keep that piece of paper for 18 months. And even worse, depending on what your point of sale system is, especially if you use something that doesn't protect you against certain liabilities, those receipts are often uh, connected to a server. So like, let's say that Molly made X number of dollars in tips, and that's an employee record, and that's a seven year time frame that you have to keep. So wow. we got some National Science Foundation funding. Again, we just started with research. And I went out and I, to the National Science Foundation paid for me to go kind of around. So I went to like Asheville, North Carolina, tourist places. Yep. And I just asked them about the practice of how people are keeping the receipts. So like in airports, huge deal because they need to keep these receipts somewhere, right? So um, the practice that almost universally everyone who has paper receipt uses, they put it in a number 10 envelope, they write the date on the top, and they put it in a box and they put it somewhere. Either they give it to their accountant, a storage unit, Druthers has a storage unit. Is anybody here from Druthers for all their receipts? Um, and so it can be a real problem for some restaurants. Capital Region, not so much. Our, our commercial square footage, $13 a square foot or whatever, $14 a square foot, not a big deal. Manhattan, big deal. Airports, big deal. Wow. So the solution, and we had 14,000 receipts in six months, just to oh, give you a sense. Wow. We're a small, at the time we had 49 seats. How much does that take up space-wise? So, and yes, it, it takes up basic, a lot of space. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the worst part is sometimes you've got to find the receipts. Okay. That's the worst part. So Receipt HQ is just kind of like, how do I solve this problem in my own business? So we just, it's really simple. Instead of putting in a number 10 envelope that you put in your basement, we give you a prepaid envelope. You put the receipts in the prepaid envelope. You mail it to a associated scanning firm. They FTP it up to our software that we created with Troy Webb. I see some representation. Um, I would highly recommend using Troy Webb for anything like this, by the way. Just a little, a little plug. A little plug for them. That's right. Can you be a sponsor next week? Next no week? <laughs> so, um, we, we and worked with Troy Webb to make this platform. And it's very simple. We, you can search by the last four of the credit card, and we're going to expand the database so that you can search by anything. Server, <coughs> table number. So 
these are kind of the expansion opportunities, right? Because in restaurants, often you don't know um, like why certain things are happening, right? So I'll give you an example. There might be four two tops, right? And with Receipt HQ, you can see which one is underperforming. So then you can send out an email or a bot to your client and say, hey, is that, is that table by a window or by a, a door? So, so in the some, winter, it's underperforming. So it's data. And then it's all data. And so then all of a sudden, they're getting Facebook ads about vestibules and whatever. And so it's a, it's a, the white tablecloth restaurant uh, industry in the United States is a $10 billion industry. So people are very interested in having that data as well. Awesome. Is this part of your, do you have an announcement within that or what do you? So the thing that I was going to announce is not totally finalized. Do you want to wait? You don't have to put you on the spot. I'm not. If I were a reporter, I, I would keep pushing you. Yeah. But now I'm on the other side. You're an so expert. I'm a nice guy. Well, if I was a good marketer, what I would say is that you just have to follow us on Facebook <laughs> and we'll announce it. And then we'll link to it. That's right. The, okay. Um, oh, Tyler, you had a question. Getting oysters fresh every day sounds like an interesting logistics problem. Can you yeah. talk about some of the challenges you've had there and how you want to solve that with business problems? Yeah, so that's a huge supply chain management issue. So, so supply chain management and restaurants, there are certain businesses that are tackling that for sure. For us, so we have three different oyster purveyors. And so because we're landlocked, it's often about the middleman. So you'll have... Uh, food companies that drive, it, actually fish people, they're crazy in such a good way. So they, listen to this, they get to uh, work at like one in the morning, they drive to Boston, and then they drive oh the gosh. fish or oysters back. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That wow. And so I had to learn about that culture for sure. So that was definitely a trying, there was one night that we ran out of oysters. Oh. And early, <laughs> like at 8 p.m. On a weekend. So what'd you do? Call I, the Cisco guy? I think I just, I, I just like said I was sorry. People were pissed. <laughs> you know, like Did you give them like angry. a coupon to come back tomorrow? And yeah, I think I was just, I mean, it was very early on. And it was just because we didn't anticipate how busy we were going to be. But it's also balancing those purveyors. So yeah. you can only get West Coast from some places. But we like to get... Um, oysters from farms that we know about, so then we want to use, it, it's, it's a very, so do, but the process is actually relatively simple. You make a call at the end of the night, 11 p.m., call someone, his name's Donnie. And you Donnie. call him, yeah, and he has a voicemail, and you say, I want this, this, and this, and then he brings it to you next day. <laughs> this sounds a little shady, I'm sorry. <laughs> Big Don. That's right. Um, actually, what's so funny, sorry, really quickly, so that, the person who I mentioned, he um, works for uh, Brickman, which merged with Driscoll's, but if any of you know food. But um, my chef, Eric, uh, went to a food show of Brickman's yesterday, and he met Donnie in person for the first time. So there is a Donnie. And he was like, he was like a celebrity. He was just like, he didn't look like what he thought he would look like. You know? that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. I have time for one more question. Unfortunately, I got to, because we're going to wrap it up. We always promise to get you guys out at 1 o'clock. But... Is there anything on this entrepreneurial journey that you wish you knew then yeah. that you know now? I think, I think that the, the biggest thing that I wish I knew, and this sounds very vague, but it was, it's just like the, the um, essence of KPIs. 
So key performance indicators. So, and how to track them within your own business. So I didn't know how to do that from academia. I knew how to do it like in grants, but in a restaurant, the, the most exciting thing for me about going from academia to the restaurant is the restaurant's so fast paced. It's so, it's much more like instantly rewarding than academia. Like I give you a beer, I take your money. <laughs> like transaction, done. No long term. You know, like that, and that's a very liberating feeling. But because things are going so quickly, to figure out what your KPIs are and how to track them as you're running the business is a very difficult thing to do. That's awesome. That's, I want to recommend a movie, by the way. It's Doris Day, who just passed away. Okay. I think it's called Something About Jane. And I think she's a lobster, she, she supplies lobsters to restaurants. Cool. So look it up. I think if you like Doris Day, I like yeah. Doris Day. Que sera, sera. So let's give it up for Heidi Nablock. That was awesome. I could talk to her all day. There are certain people that you can talk to all day, and I, there's, we do have a lot more questions we didn't get to. So thank you so much. Again, I want to thank Craig Skevington and Steadfast IT for being our meal sponsor today. Um, I also want to thank Richard Lynn and Agora Technologies for being um, our videographer. And I also, it's my pleasure to announce our next speaker, which is June 20th, will be Toby Sonier, another PhD. So I don't know what we're doing here, but she's with First Playables, amazing person. She's just done amazing things, and, um, and she's very thoughtful, just like Heidi is, just, uh, and it'll be a great conversation. So thanks again for coming, and have a great... The final thing that I'll say is I would encourage you, for those of you who are not from Schenectady, who just came here today, I would encourage you to be a local tourist and go to one place before you go, and also just to visit the other cities in the area. And if you want to see the Biz Lab, I will be around in about 15 minutes. I'll give you a tour. Thanks again for coming. Have a great day. This is for you. I meant to announce oh, this. thanks. A little trophy. Yes. It's great. So, I talked to Clarkson so once. Thank you. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Hi. How are you? How are you Yeah. Very thoughtful. Yeah. Very thoughtful. Yeah. 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 Yeah